welcome back for another episode of The First Day Pie. Today, Leanne and Michael are very thrilled to have back licensed professional counselor and certified addiction specialist, Matthew Govier. This is his second appearance on the show, and today we'll be focusing on successful strategies for dealing with addiction of any kind. Remember that Matthew is not a medical doctor, and all opinions and commentary in this episode are his own. Now let's get on with the first day pod. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of the First Day Podcast. Uh, my name is Michael Govier, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Leanne. Hello. Good evening, Leanne. Hello, Michael. How are you? Wonderful. It's a pleasure to make your acquaintance this evening, <laughs> and we're looking forward to having another enlightening and hopefully useful episode as we are joined by licensed professional counselor, certified addiction specialist Matthew Govier, also known as my brother. Matt, Yay. welcome to the show again. This is your second appearance and uh, we're really glad to have you back on. Yeah, it's syndicated. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> syndicated! The first day pod. That's right. You can find us on channel 50, channel 20. No, those are uh, <laughs> local local channels from the past. I don't even know if those channels exist anymore. I haven't seen them. What about JLB? Uh, that's radio, but yeah, maybe. Who knows? Maybe we're on late at night. That's right. 97.9 J98 WJLB with Mason. All right. You're listening to the first day pod. First day pod at protonmail.com. First day pod on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. We have our Facebook page, which you can engage with us in. And we also have our support zone, the Facebook support group, where you can flesh out ideas you hear on the episode in greater detail. We're happy. We'd be thrilled to get any feedback on what you hear on any episode. And for those of you on the live stream, if you're here now in person, you can comment on the comment section to the right and ask us questions in real time. If you're listening to the podcast, send us questions. First day pod at protonmail.com. On today's show, we're going to talk with Matthew about addiction, addiction strategies. We have a few concepts that we'll go over. Last time, we covered some of the broad strokes on what Matt does and I figure on this show, we can talk a little bit more about that, but also get into some more detail on addiction. Right, Leanne? Mm-hmm. And so right now, this week is like the week where the majority of people are going to like hop off of their their New Year's resolutions and their goals that like everybody was super excited and like, it's a new year, a new me and trying to do all that. And then they say it like kind of peters out after three weeks and it's like, meh. Nobody's, I mean, nobody's really going to the gym anyway now, but <laughs> in regular times. So I thought that maybe we could talk about that too, Matt. Like, what are some strategies, especially for us that like struggle with addiction to begin with, how we can kind of keep going after these three weeks and, and it kind of still be successful? Yeah. Well, how do you know that you struggle with it is the first part. Hmm. Mm. Well, um, wait, 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 wait. Before we even okay. get into that, the okay. first part is 
First part I want to get clear is that Matthew is not a medical doctor and all commentary are his own opinions and should not, should not be construed as medical advice. Just want to get that on the record loud and clear. Now we may continue forward with the show. Sorry. Absolutely correct. Great point. My opinion doesn't matter. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's uh, an opinion that could be debated as well. But anyways, let's get back to Leanne's point. (laughs) I love it when you say that. So how do you know? Um, Okay. So. I feel like I'm struggling because I have, I want to have more control over things like my eating and then I don't. So I do really well and then I don't. I've had a really bad last three or four days falling back into old habits and um, yeah, I feel like at six o'clock tonight, I was like, okay, it's the first day of the rest of my life. I'm going to like get a handle on things. And I'm going to, although it was like I had a full stomach. So of course it was easy for me to say it at that point. Um, So that's how I feel like I know that I'm struggling with it because I'm not staying consistent. Well, nobody's consistent. See, that's the problem is we want consistency, but um, we are, we are not consistent. So the problem in psychology is how do you, how do you help somebody create cohesion and consistency when everyone is inconsistent? Mm -hmm. And so it becomes an issue. Um, Again, this is where what we talked about last time with acceptance and commitment therapy, Mm -hmm. um, not holding on to an idea of self. So when we hold on to an idea of self, we're attached to this idea. Oh, I want to be this person who does this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and if you're attached to that, then like, you know, it's like uh, the Buddha saying it creates suffering in itself. So right. if you're attached to this idea that you can't you can't meet the expectations that you set yesterday for yourself, then you're not in a fluidity of self. So you're not seeing the context that you're in in the moment and everything that the environment's bringing in to you. Not to mention everything that happened over a 24-hour period that could change your physiological, well, chemistry. Okay. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe you ate something earlier. Maybe your insulin spiked. Maybe you're hypoglycemic. Maybe you're hyperglycemic. I mean, how do you know any of these things? Have you been right. tested? Do you know? Right. You know, everyone's different. So what your expectations are, we want to make sure that they meet reality for you hmm. or for me or for anyone. So that's highly important. Absolutely. But But remember, there's values too. So if you value something, then you want to, it's not about just like, oh, I'm a different self all the time. So it gives me permission to do whatever I want. And that doesn't, so that would mean that we're not accountable, but we are accountable and we are responsible. And that's anchored in our core values. So then I would ask you, is what happened as far as like the, the eating or is it, it's it food, it's eating or is it eating? Yeah, it's binging. Binging. Yeah. yeah. Binge eating disorder? Yeah, I think so. Like I am telling DSM. myself, what's that? In the DSM. So, right. So what is well, she mean? doesn't know that though. So, cause she hasn't gone to a doctor to get that confirmed. No, but it's I'm okay. Pretty... The DSM is not valid, remember? Right. It's not. But I don't care about that. I, I want to go back to your point about how people don't have the information at hand. And we're making a lot of wild speculation about what's going on with us when we don't have enough information on a lot of our profile 
for our health. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Absolutely. That's no, that, that's the main point. So I think a lot of times people beat, excuse me, beat themselves up. And, you know, what are you beating yourself up about? That's what it comes down to. It's like, um, if you don't know all of the facts, if you don't know your genetic makeup, and if you don't know how the environment interacts with your genetics, then how do you really know what's good for you and what's not good for you? Right. Right. That's a good point. I want to read this uh, real quick. We got this book from one of our other guests, Dave Wolf, and uh, it was sent to me. This is a real book written by him and Cynthia Morrison, Myers Morrison, by the way. It's called The Fix for Cravings. Now, this focuses a lot on food addiction. That's Dave's specialty, obviously, with Sugar X Global and trigger-free nutrition. But I did find this interesting, and I'm on. I'm still early in the book, Dave. I'm getting there. But on page 35, it says, uh, I believe we can better understand addictive behavior by viewing it through these two paradigms, the fantasy of moderation versus the memory of pain. And the, the fantasy of moderation encompasses the addict's inability to understand if the triggering substance is ingested, he will not be able to control the quantity of its intake. And then the memory of the pain is a personal tool created by the addict who is in recovery. It's a memory based on healthy fear, which is visceral to the individual. So I thought that was kind of interesting when I think about addiction and how we look at things and Oh, there's Dave's here right now. He popped in real quick. There he is. Just stopping in real quick. We'll see you all next week. Can't wait. Okay. Hey, Dave, thanks for joining <laughs> us. Got your book, Dave. There it is. Um, not to cut you off at all, guys, but I just found that to be an interesting passage about what it, what we're doing when we're dealing with an addiction, whether we understand it or not, the, the memories we create, the pain that we remember, and then maybe we hold on to, and it gives us a sense of identity at times, which... I think is interesting. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, all addiction is seeking relief from pain. Mm -hmm. And what is that pain? I mean, that's, that's be emotional or physical. Correct. So that's what, that's when I say first we have to define it. We have to define what is the addiction and it does come down to pain. So we seek relief from pain. As we seek relief from pain, we're seeking relief from trauma is what we're doing. What is traumatic? Well, birth. That's the first trauma. Okay. It is it is for everyone. So it's that's trauma number one. And yeah. that's we come into this world in pain. That's why we're screaming. It's not a pleasant experience, right? Wow, yeah. You know, like uh, laughing and you know, giggling and having a good time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Guess, yeah right. It's usually the a... <laughs> and then what happens? Well, you go, we go through a traumatic situation or we go through the traumatic birth itself and then we are cuddled. Okay. We are put into our mother's arms and our father's arms and we get a sense of safety. Mm. That safety and security shows us that the world is a safe place and our needs will be met. If mm. that doesn't happen, then the pain reverberates through time. So that would be the first example. Another example could be as we're growing up, we need to, we need to share our vulnerabilities and insecurities. We need to be open. And as we're open and as we're sharing, if we're, shut down in some way 
while we're being vulnerable, um, we learn to not be vulnerable. And we learn that to be exposed and to be open and to share things um, is not something to do. And therefore we should hold it in. And it can actually be painful if we do it. Um, we might be told that uh, we are, well, the classic example is, um, okay, are, you're crying. I'll give you something to cry about. Everyone <laughs> oh, yeah. Everyone's heard that from their parents. Yep. Okay, well, that's highly, highly invalidating. Yeah. Okay, and these are just examples of what's normal in our culture, like very normal, which brings people to points of pain and then relief seeking. And what happens from a um, psychiatric point of view, addiction in itself is an impulse disorder, which then converts into a compulsive disorder over time. Okay. So we impulsively seek relief from, could be anxiety, could be trauma, could be pain of some type, or it could just be um, an insecurity, okay? And there, there's an impulse there. So that impulse, we move through this like cycle, it's like a cycle. So we have the impulse and then it creates this uh, reward or relief. And then there's the use, sorry, impulse, use, relief, reward, okay? Yeah. And that, that would be an impulse. So then over time, if you move down through time, you keep doing that. And then what happens is it turns into a compulsive disorder. So now it's compulsive, meaning that you lose control. So now instead of using to, or acting out or whatever the addiction is, um, to relieve pain, the pain that you're relieving is the actual pain of the addiction. Mm. So the addiction in itself becomes the trauma. Mm -hmm. and we traumatize ourselves over and over every time we think we failed. <laughs> <laughs> Sucks, huh? Yeah. yeah. That is... That is a lot to take in. Uh, yeah, so if those of you that are just joining us, our guest is Matthew Govier, licensed professional counselor, certified addiction specialist, and much, much more. Yes, he is also my brother. We do share the same last name, Yancey. Very, uh, very, <laughs> very uh, perceptive of you, Nancy. Yancey. Thank Nancy. You, Nancy. Yeah, Yancey, has anyone ever called you Nancy, by the way? I, that just kind of spilled out of my mouth. I did not mean to call you Nancy Yancey, but I wonder about this addiction and the trauma and the kind of inverse relationship of it. I hadn't considered that it just all becomes the same cycle of routine over and over and over again. And now that I think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So everyone who has trauma or sorry, everyone who has an addiction has a trauma or has multiple traumas, or what they call complex, complicated trauma. Um, but not everyone who's gone through trauma has an addiction. Mm -hmm. There's other ways to seek relief. It won't always be through addiction. But everyone who's wow. gone through an addiction is seeking relief from a trauma. What's traumatic to one person could be a sense of just ease to another person. 
And this is based off the genetics of resiliency. So take, for example, for out of uh, 10 people, um, so 10 people go through a traumatic situation. Um, four women will develop a trauma-based stress disorder out of the 10, and three men will. Hmm. So it's 40% for women, 30% for men. Okay. Okay. And that could be like a, um, it could be a natural disaster. It could be a, um, a fear of germs. It could be a global pandemic. We're mm. all being traumatized right now. Every single one of us. Mm -hmm. This nation is traumatized. Well, we that's, where you, that's where you get into the collective consciousness, right? Well, yeah. So we're, we're not separate from the culture that we live in and no. the society that we live in. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but, I mean, that, that'll, that'll create, we, we can have, um, so trauma can happen through a vicarious sense. So you don't even have to witness the actual trauma itself. Let's say somebody, you know, God forbid is murdered in some way, something horrific happens. And as something horrific happens, you don't have to witness it. You don't have to see it. You don't have to hear it, any of it. You can hear somebody talking about it. Mm. And because we have mirror neurons, these are neurons that are in our brain that actually mirror whatever the other person is um, actually doing physically or the emotions that they're experiencing. We will experience the same emotions. Okay, so mm -hmm. they put people in MRI machines and they watch this happen. So one, okay. uh, one person will raise their hand and then they'll see the other person where they're well, usually where their hand would be raised, it lights up in their brain on the fMRI. And they're just sitting there with their arms down. So emotions, yeah, all of this is quite contagious. Emotions are just as contagious as, oh, SARS-CoV-2. Probably more, actually. It's more contagious. Yeah. You've never known somebody who can come in and just, like, deflate a whole room or can lift up a whole room. Those people exist because of the emotions yeah. that they they put out, right? The the energy that comes from them. And and that's the interesting part is so the energy starts with them, and we, for some reason, and I think this comes back to one of the core problems or core issues that we all face is that we don't own our own power, in that sense. So we attribute it to the other person. Sure, the other person modeled it but then it was ignited inside of us. So our own physiology is what ignited the actual emotion. It was the other, we just witnessed it in the other person. So in the same way that can happen, a, somebody can vicariously take on trauma. So if you're watching television, if you're seeing the capital of the United States of America being torn apart, this can be quite scary because you could think, well, could this happen to me? Could this happen to the town I live in? Right. Well, I'm glad we live in a country where that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it does. It did. And, yeah. and it's, 
it's so important to, to look at this stuff and, you know, have a conversation about these types of issues because when we slide it under the rug or we think it's taboo <clears throat> to actually talk about it, what happens? Well, the United States of America happens, right? A revolution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's why we're here because of oppression from a king, from the great leader. We left. So now I have, a, I have a question for you about what you just said about if you see it on the news and you see all the stuff happening and that could be the trauma that you're internalizing kind of thing. If you, like I didn't feel like I was overly affected by it, but I know that I am generally I'm affected by hurt. Like when I see people hurt, I, I don't internalize it, but I, I have a hard time with it. With the pandemic, when I was knowing everybody was dying, well, not everybody was dying. That was horrible to say. But um, when I was listening to the numbers, it was very difficult for me. So I had to like kind of distance myself from it. But now that you're saying that, I was watching obviously what was happening last week and can you internalize trauma without realizing it's hurting you mentally and that's where you can end up having these things? Because I've been trying to figure out why I fell off and, and started binging and, and doing all these things and I'm trying to rationalize it and maybe that is part of what happened. I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, it definitely could be part of it. Um, so if we take the approach from just an addiction standpoint, um, then we're going to look at it through a single pointed lens. So I think it's important to look at it through a multifaceted lens. Mm -hmm. um, sure, you want to look at it through what, what is addiction treatment? It's just behavioral change. That's all it is. It's mm -hmm. operative conditioning. Okay, so it's a stick and a carrot. And that's it. Addiction in itself is really a learning process. Mm -hmm. This has been shown in a wonderful book by Dr. Mark Lewis, The Biology of Desire. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's about learning is what it comes down to. So he's mm -hmm. a neuroscientist who showed that actually the changes that occur in the brain uh, when addiction happens are the exact same changes that occur when we learn something new. Right. So from a so what do we make of that? Well, from a psychiatric standpoint, also, you have the impulsive disorder and compulsive disorder. But another way to look at addiction is that it's actually a neuroadaptive process. So it's an adaptation. Which means, does that mean, because I'm always going to go to like the light at the end of the tunnel. Does that mean, because I have not finished the book, I haven't even barely started it yet. Um, but does that mean then if something can is learned, then something can be unlearned and relearned a different way? We can't unlearn anything. Okay. We can learn new things. Mm. Well, we can't unlearn, actually. There's some great experiments on mice that they've showed with as far as like changing memories. And like when I was at the neuroscience conference, they were showing this for specifically for PTSD um, so they could change the memories. But we're not, that's not going to happen. So instead, what happens is that we learn, say you have this, um, this thing called addiction, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a bunch of neural networks, you know, in your head and it's in your brain, actually, they're all connected. 
and then something from the outside triggers it. You don't even know what it is. You have no clue. Okay. Because we're taking in all this information all the time through all five senses. Mm-hmm. And we are only processing a small amount of it through our conscious perception. The rest of it's coming in through all five senses and just being filtered through. Think about walking, for example. This is a good example. Do you know how difficult walking is? Mm. Think about everything. Look at watch a baby have to learn to walk. Mm-hmm. It takes what a year, two years to learn to walk. Like really, like get it down and run and all this. Right. It's a while. Right. So that is called procedural memory. Okay. So once that happens, the procedure takes over. So anything that comes into our um, anything that comes into our brain yeah. then can trigger a memory that you're not even aware of, which can then trigger a behavior, mm. which could cause you to say, hmm, I'm kind of hungry. And then you might say, but wait, I just ate. And then this could be because you watch something on TV that was very traumatic for you and something from the past happened, like you fell and you scraped your knee and you were given a Band-Aid to put on that knee and then you're also given a piece of fudge or a lollipop. <laughs> Here you go. Here's a lollipop. Here's some candy there for that knee. Everything's going to be okay. So yeah. there's an association with pain and then relief with the food. Mm. Absorb that, Leanne. Take that in. This is the first day pod. We're talking with Matthew Govier, certified in addiction, licensed professional counselor. I got to tell you this. We got a comment here from Patrick Kelly, who is also a part of our book club, which you can still be a part of every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. We're currently reading Living, Loving, Learning, Leo Biscaglia, a book from the 70s, but just as relevant as ever, right, Leanne? mm -hmm, So good. Yeah. Have you ever read it, Matt? Oh, it's a good one. Yeah. Get it yeah. On Audible. I've got a credit. Oh, great. Yeah, there I you go. <laughs> well, by the way, we want to shout out Sue Minch, who has also been a guest on the show, another certified and licensed professional counselor at the very least, who works over on the west side of the state. Sue Minch, thanks for hosting the book club last night. You did an excellent job. And uh, I'm sorry I didn't talk more. Uh, I had made a choice <laughs> not to talk as much, but hey, that happens. Anyways, Patrick Kelly says, uh, Leanne, for someone like you with naturally high level of empathy levels. External factors like weather, a friend being sad, or even a national uprising can trigger impulsive behaviors and a subconscious need for control through food or other addictive behaviors. What do you think of that, Matt? Do you think there's any truth to that? Um, sure. So then, it, yeah, it does come down to, so obsessive compulsive disorders. That's what I was talking about. You have an impulse disorder, which then can turn into a compulsive disorder, which is a sense of control. So uh, one of the one of the difficulties and paradoxes of addiction treatment is that um, they talk about uh, control, lack of control. AA talks about that specifically. Lack of control. That was our dilemma. Mm-hmm. Okay. So lack of control and context over the exact substance or behavior is very important. So we we all need to be in control all the time. If we didn't, we'd have no agency in life. We need to have agency and autonomy in our own lives. Okay. That's but that doesn't mean you're in control. Well, it does. 
if you're not in control of your life, then you can feel very scattered and pulled apart. But couldn't you also say that someone's not in control of their life, but they are making decisions? Does that mean that, but are you saying then to make any decision, you would have to be in control of that decision? Is control and responsible the same thing? Being um, responsible no. for your decisions? No. Okay. So the, the, no, these are all different. Um, <laughs> these are all different. So, Okay, so first of all, what you're talking about, Mike, that that's um, so for many different viewpoints. What, what are we looking at here? We're we're obviously from what okay from what I said about the tr the subconscious trigger that can come in from all five senses. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're not in control of that. It just happened, right? And then you're moving, and it's implicit memory, and then procedural memory takes over. Okay, so mm -hmm. that's one example of how we're not in control of specific memories and the behaviors and actually a lot of the food that's out there so you have years and years and years and years and years and years of feeding yourself specific types of food mainly processed food mm -hmm. well what is this lacking <clears throat> the right probiotics so it's not even you who's craving food it's your microbiome mm. so you, like, we think we're um, engaging in these behaviors and then we beat ourselves up over them, but it's not even us that's signaling when we're hungry or signaling what to eat. That's our microbiome doing that. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's another example of, you know, what you can control and what you can't control, but right. agency from a psychological point of view says that you are in control of your life and, uh, maturity would say that you are responsible for what you do and you are accountable. The universe says you're always accountable. Yeah. And your ability to respond would be responsible. So if you're not responding, then you're not responsible. You, something can happen and then you respond to it with thoughtful thoughtfulness, with clarity, um, with, with action, with purposeful action, I should say. So then that would change the dynamic and the context. Context is important again. So then that would say, okay, well, you do have control over this. You have control over the way you respond. Makes sense. So you have control over the fact if you beat yourself up <laughs> mentally or physically or psychologically, or if, yeah, I mean, you could, you could beat yourself up in all types of ways over yes. how you respond to not meeting the best intentions of the day that you set. Okay. So I have another question. So another thing that may have, and I'm going to, sorry, everybody, I'm going to make this personal just cause I, I got, I got you here. So, um, okay. So I've been working on this like side kind of project thing that I, I want to like announce to the world this week. And, um, but there's live. No, what's that? Nothing. So here's the thing. So part of me is feeling like a. I'm feeling inferior. Like who am I to do this thing? Who am I? Who's gonna listen? Whatever. All this kind of stuff. The other thing is, is that like going back to when you were saying, you know, if you would be vulnerable, which I tend to be, but it's this is going to be very vulnerable. So when you're vulnerable, then you 
have been kind of trained that like people don't um, like receive it very well. And people around me um, may not receive it because it, it might be a little bit different than who they're expecting me to be. But it's my true, like who I actually am. I'm going to just put it out there. And so people know me as like certain aspects of my life. People know me as the professional, the entrepreneur, the this person, she has everything in control. And now I'm going to have this very empathetic, uh, loving, light, kind of not structured kind of thing. And uh, people that are used to me one way are going to see me now a different way, even though that's my true who I am. I'm still a little bit not sure how they're going to take it. Yeah. Where does that sit now? Like, I don't well, know exactly what, what I'm asking. No, so, so you're talking about, um, you're talking about perception. You're talking about how do you move forward in the face of fear? Yeah. And you're talking about afraid, being afraid of uh, being vulnerable in the, in uh, a public image. And so then, potentially hurting other people because I'm not going to be what they needed me to be, what they're expecting me to be. You know what I mean? Like I'm, always a strong person that like has everything together and people come to me for certain things. And then now like, you know, maybe I'm showing that I'm vulnerable. So I don't have all the answers. Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? No, I do. I absolutely don't. Yeah. Guess what? You're not. God. <laughs> right. So, yeah. I don't think no anybody else would think that anyways. No one's perfect. But You're we, under we a misunderstood an belief. Well, we have an idea. Yeah, exactly. Um, we have an idea of who we think we are. And as we, is we have these different selves and we present with these different selves at different times. Mm -hmm. um, again, the inconsistencies of human behavior cannot account for these different selves. And as we start to integrate these selves more, that's actually what you'd call your true self. Mm -hmm. So it's both. It's not one or the other. You're actually integrated. You're like learning this new self and you have this other self and it's integrating those. Okay. And so when you turn grow into this new person, uh, it doesn't matter what other people are thinking. You are well, just... That statement can be difficult, right? Because when we say like we don't care what other people think or it doesn't matter what other people think, it should. It should matter. Um that's a cognizant. I'm using the word should. Holy should. That's okay. <laughs> so um, the fact that we care about what other people think means that we're human. And um, as the um, uh, commenter wrote, um, empathetic, that we have empathy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're connected to other people. When we stop caring what other people think, uh, we stop connecting, really, is what happens. We start isolating. And right. we become more and more isolated. So we can care, but we don't become attached to the outcome. The outcome of what they think does not determine how we put our behaviors into action unless it is going to hurt them in some way. Obviously, we can't go around just like, you know, um, hurting people all the time because that's going to cause isolation too. And, mm -hmm. you know, then they'll put you in jail. Well, there's a lot of people who do that though who go around a lot of people go around hurting people and they get away i mean 
physically, you're more likely to go to jail. But there's tons of people who go around hurting people emotionally, uh, and they get away with it for years, decades even. There's people in power right now who do that. So, sadly. Uh, let me read this, because this is to your point, Mike. Yeah. Um, so January 19th, this is uh, along the path to enlightenment. This is the daily reading for today. Everything in the universe constantly gives off an identifiable energy pattern of a specific frequency that remains for all time and can be read by those who know how. Every word, deed, and intention creates a permanent record. Every thought is known and recorded. There are no secrets, nothing is hidden, nor can it be. Everyone lives in the public domain. Our spirits stand naked in time for all to see. Everyone's life, finally, is accountable to the universe. Mm. So, it might look like they're getting away with it. But they're not? Ultimately. Who's holding them accountable? Or what is holding them accountable? Is that a spirit beyond us? A greater... uh, power definitely no doubt about it that starts to sound more like a religious version though like because spirituality and religion and they're they're intertwined in a sense but at the same time you know the classic textbook standard issue religion and you're heaven and hell and there's someone looking out there and they will determine your afterlife type deal you know well we determine our own that's what that's saying that's why we are accountable why, why um, be kind and loving towards all that we can? Why make up for um, negative karma that we've put out? Why seal good karma back into the world? Why even do that? Well, it's because, you know, either we have to pay off a karmic debt um, because we are spiritually aligned and we know that it does matter in some way. But I think that's, there's a, um, everybody comes to that in their own way. And just because we can't perceive it with our five senses doesn't mean it's not happening. Again, I am talking to the both of you across time and space, looking at a rectangle, um, you know, sliver of plastic in front of me. Is this possible? You know, if this was a hundred years ago and somebody walked into the room, Matt, what are you doing? Oh, I'm talking to people um, across time and space. They're like, okay, this guy's crazy, man. Mm -hmm. So we just don't have the technology to understand it right now, nor do we have the senses to perceive it. But it does not mean that it does not exist. that's That's a fair argument. I think you'll agree with this comment from Patrick again. I think it's important to remember to not empower people who don't really care about our feelings to determine how we feel. Would you get on board with that? Yeah, for sure. Good. I would agree too. Patrick, that's a very thoughtful comment. And we welcome all your comments, by the way, on the first day pod here. Send us a comment and we'll read it. If you have a question for Matt while we're still here, we can answer it in real time to the best of his ability. And if you have a question after the show and you're listening to this in podcast form, first day pod at protonmail.com is where you can email us. So, I will- um, so sorry, go ahead. No, no, go, please. Uh, so Dr. Uh, Melanie Joy 
Um, she's written a couple books. One book is called Power Archy. So hmm. we talk about dominance hierarchies uh, throughout psychology and sociology. So we look at, okay, these like pecking orders and like, you know, we're up here, this person's here, and there's these natural dominance hierarchies. Oh, so yeah. To make sense. Uh, and what she proposes is that there's not just dominance hierarchies, but there's uh, power archies. So we can either cooperate and have power with, so the empowerment, as the uh, commenter was just saying, and or we can have power over. So we can try to overtly um, use our power that's usually only by virtue of, um, let's see, like uh, it's not by natural virtue whatsoever, okay? So the power over people comes from um, somebody who's in a position to overtly have power. So let's say this could be like a uh, somebody um, that is the head of an organization and they, they have power because they could, let's say, um, let you go from the organization or fire you or whatever it is, right? Because they have that power. But if you change the dynamic, they no longer have that power. So do they really have power over you? That's the whole idea. So people who exert power over um, are only doing that by virtue of power that's given to them. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the only way it can happen. So we give people power in order to allow them to, well, be empowered. Mm -hmm. It's the only way it happens. So then we can, we can go power over or power with. So power with relationships um, just sends this back and forth. This creates cooperation. Okay. And this is what, I mean, this is what recovery, if we want to take this back to like addiction and trauma is all about. Um, those who go through trauma and through addiction are powerless. Mm. And they need to be empowered. So if we create power with, instead of looking down and saying all these things that are wrong, <clears throat> if we come from a strengths point of view and just let them know that it's okay. We've all been through difficult times. And, you know, that's where the vulnerability comes in. So when we share common vulnerabilities, we create mutual strength. Beautiful. You know, that reminds me of how everybody at their kitchen tables or their dinner tables at night around this country or even Canada, people are sitting there saying, how is so-and-so elected how did this person get into office how does this person get into such a situation of incredible power we're all asking ourselves the same question in all these separate domiciles uh it's all because we allowed it to happen and we we don't have like a network of connectivity where we can like speak to each other instantly to to talk about it i mean there are I guess networks now like Facebook and Twitter and things like that, where you can connect with people you never could have connected with before. My point being, there's not a, it's still harder to connect with those people. And I think of your powerarchy point that Melanie Joy's book, which I think sounds very interesting. I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. We, I see this quote, she says to move beyond powerarchy, we need to make our relationships and movements safe spaces where integrity is practiced and dignity is honored. 
Mm. Correct. And so in the context that she's talking about, she's talking about values. And so we can't, we cannot have integrity without knowing our values. And what she proposes is that integrity itself is when we put our values into action and we line up with those. Okay. So that's what integrity is. That's how we create integrity. Otherwise mm -hmm. we don't have integrity. So then we look at if we define what we value and we enact what we value. Okay. Now we're that's integrity means to be whole. So okay. now we're whole. And if we treat ourselves with dignity, then we can treat others with dignity. Yeah. It starts there first though. Correct. So if we're, if our self-talk or the inner critic is ruling our life and then we say, man, I got this addiction. I can't change my behavior. And we become focused on that. Mm -hmm. That becomes the problem. Now, if we shift our focus, we'll naturally start changing. Mm -hmm. Okay. We can sit there and try to like fight this thing and uh, come at it from whatever, a thousand different ways and try to figure it out. Or we can totally shift perspective. And we could say, well, this is what I value. That doesn't even align with what I value. So mm -hmm. let me go over here. And then maybe you participate in that behavior a few times, maybe a few more times. Slowly over time, it will recede. It will go away. So all epidemiological studies show that the number one determinant of um, remission from addiction is guess what um let me think uh, self-care self-love nope integrity no <laughs> just taking action no it's being uh between the ages of 25 and 44 what oh. why is that because people change. Okay. Naturally. So the number one determining factor in recovery from addiction is that age range more than anything else. Yep. Who says this? Uh, I'm just that, curious. That you can look it up. Um, so it actually comes from a division of the NIH, National Institute of Health. And mm -hmm. it's the, um, the National Institute of alcoholism and alcohol abuse i believe is the exact terminology for it which is like a n-i-a-a-a but that's not to say that people won't be able to recover if they're over the age of 44 no it's just and, the number one yeah and actually people who are over that age um so people are less likely to become addicted to anything if they start participating in the addictive behavior um, when they're older in life because oh. their brains are not as um, malleable as someone who's in their teenage years. Oh. So they actually, they, they learn to do what they've always done so they can just drop the addiction pretty quickly and just move over to what they used to do. Oh, so that's kind of exciting right now through the pandemic. I have a lot of girlfriends that are like, I hope this isn't turning into a, like an addiction. Cause I like, you know, wine is my best friend. It's what's getting me through right now. And 
So maybe after the pandemic, it'll be easy to slip off. Well, yeah, because there's trauma. Yeah. Makes sense. So the context of the situation is that it's really painful. Mm -hmm. So we're going to seek relief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're trying to cope. Uh, The NIAAA, the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, is uh, the institute underneath the NIH, which is the National Institute of Health. We are listening to the First Day Pod. We are talking with Matthew Govier, licensed professional counselor. You can check out behavioralhealthlabs.com if you're interested in more. Uh, also, MatthewGovier.com. G-O-V is in Victor, I-E-R. And for those of you in Canada, did you, did you end up getting that domain with the U in it? You did. Nice. <laughs> right. That's awesome. That's right. You can spell behavioral like you would in Canada with the U. Uh, what what can people find on the website right now, Matt, uh, if they go over there? Um, well, they can find a uh, self-scheduler. So if you'd like to make an appointment, you can go ahead and just uh, schedule an appointment there. Um, we also have information on, well, all types of addiction. Um, also on the process of depression, so how that manifests. Uh, there's information on COVID-19, um, mental health effects of that, um, and that's very real. So that's a huge fallout that's um, occurring, and we're actually seeing it. Um, so the uh, this is what we talked about on the last episode that mm-hmm. I was on, you know, the biological effects of um, uh, different, um, well, this could be like um, bacteria, it could be a virus, it could be anything within the environment that changes mm-hmm. our behaviors. So um that's on there and that's very real and people should know that because again we might think that oh gosh i'm depressed why am i like this well it could be because you have inflammation because of some type of infection so 20 percent of all people who um have covid19 or actually are infected with sars-cov-2 and that's a this is as of november so this study is old now yeah at that time 20 percent, so one out of five uh, develop depression, anxiety, or some other type of mood disorder. That's... Currently, right now, the pandemic is costing the United States of America $80 billion a year. Or sorry, a year, $80 billion a day. $80 billion a day. And that is simply for COVID-19 hospital care, not everything else. How sustainable is that? Holy mackerel. Sustainable as the U.S. wants it to be. Just keep printing that money. You know that. You know how much money that is? Uh, I can hear the term, but I really can't absorb what $80 billion a day is. You can say it out loud, but I still, it really, uh, it's hard to hear. Let's just say six months. Sure, that's an ungodly amount. I don't have one handy, but an ungodly amount, I would say. $80 billion a day for six months straight is a lot of cash. That much I do understand it, but it's so powerful. It's so huge, I can't even absorb it in my mind, but I do so, know it's big. Is uh, $1.9 trillion going to be able to bail that out? Uh, well, I don't know. Everything seems to stay. You know, We made it through almost a year of this thing so far, and some people say we're exceeding the light at the end of the tunnel, but the damage... You know, the collateral damage is massive, right? This financial, emotional, uh, all of these angles are, they might linger for decades. Yeah, this is actually the lingering of the 2000, um, 
2008-2009 housing crisis. Right. So financially, that's what brought us here. We tried to have reform in healthcare in the United States. It didn't happen. So no. now if you have $80 billion a day being spent on just COVID-19, who's paying for that? Well, mostly insurance companies, right? So think Or about no one. <laughs> well, no, because somebody has to pay for the services. Someone's owed it. Someone is owed and someone is in debt. Yes. That doesn't mean it's being paid, though. Correct. So it's it's on the books. Right. It needs to Agreed. be paid. So who goes bankrupt? The hospitals, and we no longer provide care to people, or the insurance companies, because they're supposed to pay it out. Insurance well, uh, I don't know. I mean, insurance companies are going to protect their own, so they'd probably they'd probably rather just hoard the money and go into bankruptcy first. So then the hospitals are left with the bill, and then they collapse possibly. Will we let that happen though? Probably not. Yeah. There's always a bailout. There's always a bailout. I mean, the two. Th you're right. We are still having the lingering effects, not just financially, but emotionally. There's an incredibly powerful emotional contingency to the 2008 housing crisis that remains to this day in early 2021. I I know it for myself personally. I, I know it. So if I, I'm not the only one who felt it or still feels it, and I was pretty fortunate during that period anyway. So there's people that are still much more long-term you talk about like long-term damage and psychological damage and the trauma that is a massive trauma that still hurts many people to this day so you're right i do agree with you there but they bailed it out and life went forward whether the people were comfortable with it or not and here we are today and a lot of people probably died that we'll never even know about because of the trauma they they kind of felt from that experience that kind of just took everything from them and sucked the life out of them well, 400,000 that we know of, and that's just from opioids. So if you if you go to the CDC's website or go to the NIH and you look at the um, epidemiology of the 21-year opioid crisis right now, or opioid epidemic right now, then what you'll see is that when did it really take off? Well, it started in 19, well, 1999, so we're talking about 22 years, sorry. So officially, that's when they started tracking it. And if you see, it's in 2009 is when heroin started to spike. So you'll see it was uh, actually like a straight line moving along. People were using it at this um, pace that was pretty steady. 2009 hits on the timeline and it goes up about 45 degrees. Okay. Oh. And what oh. happened and sorry, what they're tracking are deaths, not use. So they're tracking deaths from overdoses. Now, what was going on is people lost what? They lost their jobs and they didn't have a place to live. They lost their homes. So what did they lose? They lost their health insurance. So they didn't have health insurance. Yes. And if they were on opioids, because this all started, you know, with the prescription opioids, then they switched to heroin, which was cheaper. This is well documented. Yeah. And then the overdoses occurred. Why? Because they didn't have health insurance. They needed treatment, can't seek treatment, don't have health insurance. Um. So, yeah, the, the collateral damage and casualties are enormous. And now so, we're seeing it once again on a gigantic scale. So what is someone to do right now? Is there any piece of wisdom you can impart for anybody who might ex be experiencing heavy burden of financial collapse from medical bills, if they lost someone to COVID and there's more bills due to that, 
Is there anything that we can offer them right now? Well, this is where there has to be some type of collective movement. Okay. So to empower people, once again, this, this is highly, highly, highly important. If we're not empowering each other, then, you know, what are we doing? You know, so we have to be smart. So we have to write legislation. We can do this where this is the whole point. We're allowed to, you know, draft legislation, put it in, go to the voting booths, like understand what's going on, be able to discern like what what is it that can be helpful as opposed to what is it that is not true? We have this serious issue. And then, so if you have all these problems going on, look, you have over, so 40% of people are barely able to pay their rent or will run out of money soon to pay their rent. That's why this $1,400 that Biden's proposing has to go out. If it doesn't, then we have mass homelessness. And we have a repeat of what happened. This is this is the Obama um, era all over again, where he inherited this shitstorm, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is the exact same thing, and it's going to be a tough ride here. So there, I don't. There's no magic. Um, there's nothing to say about. There's nothing to say to say. Look, do this, and everything's going to be okay. No, there's but not. We, if we start banding together and we help each other, we create power with dynamics instead of what everything that we engage in. And I do mean everything, all types of media, social media, these all create power over dynamics. Literally we're programmed with a like, Oh yeah, I got a like, I got a like, I got a like, I got a like, what does that mean? I, 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 it programs in the narcissistic side of the ego and it promotes it. Yep. So there's, there's a lot that needs to change. Yeah. A society full of individuals instead of a collective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even though it seems they make this story, this company line about social media being a uniter, um, for example, and it doesn't necessarily do that. But it could also as well. It's not a. It's not necessarily one way or the other. But it what seems does to be. A, say? What's what's the um, motto of Facebook? Oh boy, I, I forgot. It's something about um, like connection or about the world or like everybody gets a piece of the pie or something. I can't remember what it is. But you you got yeah? Can you Google it? It's something about connecting people and building relationships. Move fast and break things. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Okay, so that's what's really going on, right? Yeah. That's their motto inside as they're coding. Um, right. They have the motto, which is to connect the world and build relationships. Yeah, now, its mission is to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. Okay, there we go. And why does he want that so bad? So he can have access to all of their data? Well, remember, look at the man himself. I don't know him. I, I mean, yeah, I, I only know what I hear. So. so his story, if you look at, you know, like his biography and what he went through, you know, he was ostracized. And where did all this come from? This came in opposition. Facebook was built in opposition 
of being outed hmm. of not being in the in crowd mm-hmm. and it so the intention of the foundation of the organization is i'll show you uh-huh. and that's what we've done so whether we're looking at somebody like autism spectrum or anything like that you know you know, the projection would be to connect people and create community. So if I can't do it myself, I'll just project it out there. See, I'm connecting people. I can do it. I'm connecting. I'm creating community. Yeah. Right. But if you ever watch an interview with him, <laughs> the guy's great, right? I mean, he's not connecting to anybody. <laughs> uh-uh. Doesn't seem like it. Well, yeah, you're, you're right. Well, uh, look, I, there's a lot of trauma from all of these angles. And I think what we're learning here today about addiction and trauma and the inverse relationship between the two and the easy way out doesn't exist, but the best path forward is a collective organizational structure that where we all seem to agree on what we think is tried and true and right, you know, and integrity and honesty and fairness and being genuine and, compassionate and loving all of these things. <clears throat> if you ask people on the, even on the surface, they'll tell you, yeah, I believe in this. That's yeah, sure. But whether we act them out with the agency that you're talking about earlier, Matt, that is what, that is what I'm learning from this episode today about we need to have an agency and integrity doesn't exist without agency. That is what I'm taking away. That's a good takeaway for this show. And I uh, wouldn't have, wouldn't have had that without you. I, I think that's a very valuable piece of information. What do you think, Leanne? Yeah, I everything is kind of just going in my I'm going in circles right now. So this was fantastic. I can't wait to listen to it all again. And that's and what I was going to say. You can go back and listen to this anytime you want. It's this is be one that I'm going to take notes on. I think for sure. There's a lot going on yeah. in here. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you um, so much for having me too. And it's uh, it is about think about it like compassion versus control. Mm-hmm. You know? And that, that would be integrity um versus um like hollowness in a sense or or um falsehood integrity versus falsehood yeah Mm. honesty and yeah yeah that's the constitution of the united states of america right it was founded on that i mean it was founded on these principles yeah yeah maybe (laughs) I mean, if you just, okay, we'll look at like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Right? So uh, every year I read on this day, I don't know, I just turned it into tradition, so I do it, but I'll literally read it out loud. I'll read the I Have a Dream speech. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that say? If you read that, those words are so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's all about unity. It's it is. It's all about connection. It's all about coming together. And it's about nonviolence. Mm-hmm. So that's the only movement that, well, nonviolence brought down the British Empire. And that's what Gandhi did. One man committing to nonviolence brought down hmm. the entire British Empire. Wow. Uh, MLK was also taken out with violence. But what they did is they created a, uh, a martyr, in a sense of someone whose legacy lives on to this day, but even MLK might be a little disappointed right now um, to see that we're so fractured. Uh, But then again, he didn't have to deal with a lot of things we've dealt with now too. 
in terms of how the modern world works and being so isolated more than we've ever been, despite appearing to be as connected as we've ever been, right? Is that fair to say? Well, yeah. I also think the reverberation of what he did is recorded in time. It is. The reason talked about. And that's that's why we celebrate the day. That's why we still utter the words. So people live on forever. Eternal life is very tangible and real if we continue to talk about and share the stories of the people who have departed. In that way, they really live. Yeah. There's some cultures, though, you don't talk about the dead. So. No. Which, uh, some culture, not every culture, but there are some. So. True. Um, but I, I've, I agree with you, Matt. I've often you know, thought of you know, friends I've lost at a young age, and I always want to talk about them and remember them and think about the spirit and the energy that they brought to my life as opposed to burying it or trying to forget about it. It only leads to uh, in, insidious kind of negativity that slowly creeps up inside of you if you, if you choose to block out what you appear, what may appear to you as a negative or a traumatic event that you can't handle. It's better to face it on, talk about it, understand why it is, and then maybe start to have a better conversation about it with other people and celebrate the people and the energy that they brought to your life while they were here in the physical form so that they remain, may remain in the formless with us beyond that. Yeah, no doubt, man. Yeah. That's great, man. This has been a great episode. I've really enjoyed having you on, of course. Well, we're going to have you on uh, oh, every uh, every month or so, roughly, give or take, when you're available, right? Um, yeah, yeah, we'll do the third uh, Tuesday. We'll keep this one uh, short. We're already five minutes over. We'll go an hour and however long that other one was. <laughs> yeah, the oh, other one, one was a long one. Last one was about an hour and a half. That was, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good enough. Uh, it is. This has been great. Uh, we want to thank Matthew Govier for joining us. My dear brother, doing some great work, and he's continuing to do that work. If you're interested in his services, you can go to tell him where to go, man. Tell him, give him the whole spiel here before we go. Yeah, that's behavioralhealthlabs.com. Spell behavioral in whichever way you spell it in your language of choice. And you can go to matthewgovier.com, and that's G O V I E R. So MatthewGovier.com or BehavioralHealthLabs.com or just Google my name. You can just literally Google Matthew Govier and you can enter, you can look, you can get my contact information through like the top five Google hits now. So good job. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you everyone for helping out with that. <laughs> uh, what about the uh, Friday night talks? Are you still doing those? Um, no, those have been, um, suspended. So I started school again. Um, oh. actually, so, um, okay. interesting class that I have right now, which is, uh, genomics and public policy. So, um, hmm. actually it's quite well right now with the, uh, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 pandemic going on and how each time that we're, um, participating in testing, we're actually, what are they testing? They're testing the genetic code of the virus. But what else are they? What can they test for? Well, you're giving your genetic code to them. Mm. So there's a lot of laws that need to be um, adhered to and implemented. And, you know, isn't this, isn't this what we talked about when we you first brought up 23andMe a few years back? Right. This is what I was saying. Yeah. Well, there's the Gina law. The Gina law um, was passed in I believe 1995 or four, which protects. Um, 
genomic information. So, genome law, right? Genome? Uh, uh, Gina. G-I-N-A. Oh, the Gina. Oh. Yeah, yes. Oh, I thought, yeah. I thought you were saying genome. That would make sense, I guess. Huh? Yeah, so there, there's a lot out there right now. There's, you know, a lot going on in this world, and we need people to remain engaged and in a way that is compassionate and nonviolent. Beautiful. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you again, Matt. That's fantastic. Don't forget, you can check out uh, this episode anytime you want on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can give us a five-star rating if you really like the show. That would improve our reach, and then we can connect Matthew and ourselves with more people as we continue to try to connect the collective conscious together in unity so that we can have an integral agency for the betterment of all people hopefully down the road. I want to thank you guys again for joining us. Don't forget the book club every Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, right, Leanne? They can come join us, uh, mm. DM us, uh, send us an email, or DM us on any of our social media, and we will give you the link, and you can join us. It doesn't matter if you miss the first couple of chapters. You just jump in and let the conversation flow. I think it's a pretty, in terms of what Matt was talking about today, it's a very uh, positive tool for like bringing people together and talking about better ways forward. Absolutely. And the cool thing with this book is um, somebody brought it up uh, last night. It's not really a sequential book. It's not really like a, what it is, is they kind of talk about the lectures that he's done. So if you just read like the last couple chapters that we're talking about, you're caught up. Like you don't have to read all the way up to chapter seven. You can just read like chapter six and seven and see kind of where we're at and then catch up later. But um, yeah, so it's really cool. It's not like you're going to miss a lot if you just read the last couple chapters. So that's right. It's called Living, Loving, and Learning by Leo Bascaglia. Very good, Leanne. Very good. You got it down. Mm. Uh, you can, uh, there's a free copy on the Internet Archive if you want to just check it out and borrow it for two weeks. So, which is what I was given. That's a shout out to Patrick Kelly who found that. Thanks, Pat. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll be back next week uh, with Dave Wolf, right? We'll be talking about sugar and food addiction and how Dave's doing now that he's a father. It's going to be a thrilling, exciting. Is Judy joining us, too, or is it just Dave? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I think it's saying? just yeah, I don't see if Judy wants to come on, too. We'll see. Who can say? Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. Everybody have a Bye. wonderful, healthy, and happy evening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye.